This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. somebody's imagination huh. nobody makes up anything there is nothing wrong with your television set do not attempt to adjust the picture we are controlling transmission for the next hour sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear you are about to participate in a great adventure you are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind on WTDR. Wow. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. Are you sitting comfortably? Well, put your seatbelts on because you're in for a howling ride. I am the narrator. Voice that guides the blind, following up with your ears to your mind, and allow me to take you back and forth through time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now, but won't further down the line. I'm Tony Epstein, and welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour, a journey into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we live in. This week, we're going to continue the interview with Britta Love. Britta Love is a graduate of the London School of Economics, which she refers to as LSE. She's a former high-class call girl, and last year she graduated from Goddard's Graduate Institute from their Consciousness Studies program. This is the second in an ongoing series of conversations with Britta Love, who has been exploring new ways of seeing and knowing through sex and psychedelic drugs and how they can be used for healing and awakening both individually and ultimately for the benefit of the whole world. Britta Love, welcome to the show. 
Thank you, Tonio. Thank you for having me back. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. You were on my show, my Friday show, in December. Mm-hmm. And that was so great that I just had to have you on again. <laughs> and I feel like I could have like almost endless conversations with you about all this kind of stuff and whatever other directions Absolutely. they could go. Yeah, well, there's endless exploration to do when you have powerful tools to explore consciousness. Then you've got the whole universe at your disposal. Yeah, speaking of having this entire universe at our disposal, <laughs> your suggestion, because I always ask, want to honor my guests as much as possible and not get in the way too much, were to talk about sexual healing through sex work, the archetype of the sacred prostitute, hmm. and opening to spirituality through psychedelic drugs. Yeah, sounds great. And anything else we want. Exactly. Another thing that occurred to me was last week was Valentine's Day. Mm. And we have these pretty limited and funny ideas about love and sexuality in our culture. Colonized and romanticized mm. ideas or ideals. And you're a servant of love. I mean, you really are. You, you <laughs> just radiate that in your presence and in your work and in everything you write about. And you really reflect it you embody it so i'm really curious to hear your ideas about love and sexuality mm. well first of all i mean when i changed my last name to love it was i always say it was a spell i was casting a lifelong spell that would take a lifetime to complete because to embody love is like such a challenge and especially living in a colonized world under all the oppressive forces around us. But that is the hope, is to and embody the fear, love. Yeah. And the fear that's prevalent, which is really the opposite of what everybody wants. It's like everyone's trying to avoid fear, and yet they keep heaping it, mm. you know, additional servings of fear. Yeah, completely. And I think it's interesting how our culture is so obsessed with sort of, you know, our, we're so overly like romantic and our romantic comedies and, you know, everything's about finding your partner and the one and sexuality is like everywhere and it permeates everything. And yet we're actually really disconnected from those things. And that's, I think when things are repressed, that is how they come out in these kind of unhealthy, obsessive ways. So you kind of have a society that wants love, but actually doesn't know how to lead with the heart at all. So a lot and, of us... And is afraid to really explore outside of these kind of narrow parameters. Mm, especially like the vulnerability that's necessary and the surrender that's necessary to really reach into the depths of love or amazing sexual experiences, re you know, requires this surrender of the ego, which is yeah. antithetical to our culture in a lot of ways. Yeah. So how can we encourage people, entice people to take those steps out into that scary, unknown place of vulnerability? Mm. Well, I think that I've learned in my life anyway, I've learned to be almost kind of compulsively jump into those fear places because of the rewards that have come out of it for me. So, you know, I still have the fear that comes up at the idea of getting that vulnerable or that naked in that way, but I push through it because I've, I've done it enough to see how that gives the universe the opportunity to present new things to you for new experiences to take place, for new connections to be made, that holding on to control just doesn't. And... 
I think a lot of us have a lot of trauma from, you know, times when we were vulnerable and in a very cruel way society has shut us down. Often when we're really young, it's sort of we learn in adolescence at some point that you can't be that way anymore. Or earlier. Or earlier, or even, yeah, as a child. I mean, it's especially, I think, the way that boys are socialized generally in society is often like an even earlier severing of that, that showing of vulnerability or emotional or empathy. So it's like having to reconnect through a lot of that, which is really scary. And, you know, there's this sort of belief system that we hold a lot in our culture that you can't lead with the heart. You can't follow those things because you'll be taken advantage of some this hard world out there. You got to... Or that the heart is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. That it's knowledge, it's intellectual knowing that's meaningful. Which implies that that's a bad thing too, which is all the whole belief system is all built in there. Yeah, and it's so interesting because you just look at the way that we've managed to sort of intellectually lead ourselves so far from anything that would be healthy or sustainable in our world and in our lives. And that's where we've gotten disparaging the heart and the intuition and not finding a place for both. And kind of digging ourselves into an intellectual deep hole Mm -hmm. that we now have to really dig ourselves out of a really, really deep hole. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because it feels like we're not going to dig ourselves out of it. We're going to do, I don't know what the uh, verb is for how we're going to emerge from this, but it's it's going to involve using these new tools that are going to allow us to move in ways that we've completely forgotten that we can move. Yeah, so it's this crisis moment, I feel like, that we've arrived at in so many ways. I mean, you know, not assuming everyone's political views, but just the state of the earth even and what's happening in our own viability as a species, even if we only care about ourselves at this point. And crisis moments are opportunities for healing. It's when you're off skating on the edge and you might fall off, but it's also the only time that you have the opportunity to change in a way, because otherwise you're too in the normal flow that you can't see outside of it or see other paths forward. And one thing that I've been connecting to a lot recently is feeling that the chaos and the overwhelm and there's a lot of crazy things happening out there right now. And it's not to belittle the harm that's actively being perpetuated every day, but there's also a sense at the same time that we need to stay connected to as well of how this destabilization could be an opportunity if we choose to make it that. So I feel like we're living at the end of Rome kind of feeling, you know, it's like the emperor has no clothes, you know, things are splitting at the seams. We don't really know. There are no truths. There are no real sources of news. There are no, like all these things that now we have to decide what they are. And that's something that we could try to do consciously and see if we could shift things in a direction we've always wanted them to go. We've always known they should go. Yeah, I love that analogy to Rome And I've been thinking about this. It's like Rome is burning and Nero is fiddling. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, we have a real reality to deal with Mm -hmm. and to take responsibility for. And yet Nero is just fiddling Mm -hmm. and Rome is burning and nothing is being done about it. Yeah. Or so it seems. But that's what's so important about this moment is that you have people becoming politically aware and Mm -hmm. waking up in ways that just didn't happen under Obama, wouldn't have happened under Clinton. So it's very interesting to see if we could use this energy, if we can use this momentum for change. It reminds me so much of what I've learned through psychedelic experience. It's reminded me so much of, you know, okay, so now it's like we've taken the drug. We're seeing all of our shadow self. We're in the peak of a bad trip. Those of us who have taken the drug. (laughs) And I don't know if we're a minority 
in our society, I would tend to think that we're at least a minority in terms of the people who are in high positions of authority and responsibility in the mm-hmm. world. And that's dangerous because our world is ruled through a kind of intellectual tyranny. Mm-hmm. And even the quality of that intellect is highly suspect <laughs> these days yeah, absolutely. and getting more so absolutely but it's kind of in a way having it clear that someone could rise to the top who is such a sort of caricature such a of humanity's shadow i mean yeah right? exactly if, or at I mean, least if this you, country exactly if you wanted to create like a mascot cartoon version of like the shadow of america we've elected it president right that's yeah. really what's happened yeah and i kind of saw it when he first announced that he was running and everyone thought it was a joke no, this would be the perfect cosmic joke that will really happen of like, this is where we're at and here it is reflected back at us. And that's right now a terrible thing for all the people who are being oppressed by the new laws and, and living in fear, but possibly one of, there were only two ways we could have gotten an opening for change. And in my opinion, when Bernie didn't make the nomination, that path when he was railroaded out. Yeah. Way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Then that was no longer the option. And that's interestingly, it was after he lost the nomination that... I felt physically sick in my body and felt the way I thought I would have felt once Trump got elected because I knew then that that was the one option was gone and the only way forward now was through the bad trip. Yeah. You know? Yeah. (laughs) I, I felt the exact same thing. I thought we were heading into a perfect scenario of Trump versus Bernie. Yes, I had the same feeling. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Bernie was yanked out of the picture by the left, the people who, have, of all people, should have known that Bernie was our only hope, and yet they went and doubled down on re-entrenchment into their old hmm. ways. I know, and it's like, and it was not even you know a guarantee if he'd gotten in that it could have changed the system from within anyway, but it was the nicer, right. well, more totally hopeful agree. idea. And, yeah. um, and and maybe we're better off that that didn't happen, but we don't know. We don't, we don't see know. the big picture Yeah, exactly. Yet. But it sounds like we share an optimism. Yeah. That even in the darkest times, there's always the seed of hope and light and love mm. and possibility yeah. that humanity will rise. Because, it, you know, mm. when the chips are really down, that's when humanity rises and recognizes and lives up to who they can be. Yeah. Well, that's what Rebecca Solnit writes a lot about, how it's, you know, times of tragedy, right? When there's yeah. earthquakes or, you know, floods or, you know, that suddenly suddenly we're all the best versions of ourselves. Suddenly right. we're out directing the traffic and cooking food for the community and using our skills for the greater good. And I already feel that that's some part of what's already the some silver lining to what's taken place is people coming into their best versions of themselves and wanting to give. Or at and least they're touching on, they're moving in that direction. Exactly. <laughs> but it's the beginning of people starting to orient themselves to that, even though things were really messed up. And actually, so many of the things that we're complaining about now are things that were happening under Obama, too. But now we have this awareness, right? Obama deported more immigrants than any other president prior. And, and yet all the focus has happened when Trump does it. Some people use that as an excuse, like, oh, he's not so bad. And to me, it's like, no, that's one of the few good things about Trump being elected is we're actually paying attention. And there's things that are people who have been hurt by the system for a long, long time. And a lot of us in our bubbles haven't had to feel it or be aware of it. Right. So it's creeping closer to home, mm-hmm. even for those of us with 
multiple layers of privileged insulation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we needed that awareness because otherwise things were never going to change. Right. We'll never be motivated mm-hmm. to rise to the best of who we can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So on that note, <laughs> you mentioned that we have these wonderful tools. Yes. Well, there's probably infinite ways to access states of healing, spiritual states, states of unconscious wisdom, and waking up. But to me, the two most powerful and often neglected are are right in front of us in a way. For me, transforming our relationship to sexuality and seeing what a powerful tool that is for surrender and connection is really important. And of course, it's always sex and drugs, right? So drugs, the psychedelics that have been, you know, we went through this whole period of like, you know, the 60s, everything being so opened up and then this reactionary pushback. And now we're having this renaissance even within like really conservative institutions of doing scientific research on what is going to be a psychedelic renaissance in medicine that's going to completely revolutionize mental health treatment. It's happening already. We're going to have legal MDMA by prescription by a therapist for treating PTSD by 2021. They're in the last stage of clinical trials. So things like this and there's psilocybin magic mushrooms research happening right now as well. So what's interesting is that once you start seeing like, oh yes, this is on the BBC and in the New York Times now, this is starting to gain momentum. Now it's like we stop pushing for us to be allowed to access them or to legitimize them again. And now we start questioning how they're being used and and what they could be used for beyond those first steps because science is taking these baby, baby, baby steps into something that indigenous and traditional peoples and also just people who've been connected to plants in their lives have known for a long, long time, which is that psychedelics are like what the microscope was, you know, for consciousness. We're going to realize how little we actually knew about ourselves. It's kind of the last frontier Mm. or the next frontier. (laughs) The big frontier. Mm -hmm. The deepest frontier. The most relevant frontier. Yes. The one frontier that if we don't really explore all the other frontiers don't matter anymore. don't really matter <laughs> yeah. yeah so many people have been brought up with a lot of false propaganda and fear about psychedelic drugs mm-hmm. drugs in general anything not prescribed by a doctor mm-hmm. that drugs are bad absolutely it's categorically and the government wouldn't ban these drugs if they weren't bad, if they right? weren't bad. Yeah, because the government knows best. Never and always. never lies. Never lies. Never makes. Never mistakes. tells us anything wrong. <laughs> and, and is no. all wise and all knowing. Absolutely. Well, there's that amazing John Ehrlichman quote that came out recently under Nixon. He was recorded as saying, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, but it was like, you know, we knew that if we could associate heroin with the blacks and marijuana with the hippies, that we could shut down the civil rights and hippie movements in a way that we wouldn't be able to otherwise. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. That is a direct quote, that last sentence. It was Mm -hmm. like... Wow, like, okay, so now we know that. Now it's not to say that drugs can't be harmful or they're tools that could be used in all sorts of ways, just like we recognize that alcohol could be a lovely way to have a nice time out for a drink or a tool that we abuse, but we don't make it illegal because we understand that we're adults and we make those choices. And so I had to do a lot of reprogramming. I mean, I was brought up with all of those ideas around me like we all were, and I was the just say no girl till I was 19 years old. I almost broke up with my boyfriend when I was 16 because he smoked weed, which is amusing to me looking back. Um, you 
you know, I thought he should just get his act together and focus on his schoolwork. So I have that background as well and that awareness. And I sort of stumbled into exploring altered states of consciousness. And I went through years of using drugs very unhealthily. So I know both sides of the coin, but I've ultimately what I've discovered is that when you're using things compulsively or unhealthily or destructively, you're going to do that with whatever tools are available. And that's just what's happening. So getting to the root of that is where we need to look. Like for me, looking at the roots of my addiction, I was looking way farther back to the days where I was using, or some would say abusing cocaine or speed. It was looking back to the first times I was binging on food at 13, you know, when I had all my anxiety of my adolescence come up. So looking back to the roots of that addiction, which Ironically, I did with another so-called drug, a powerful plant medicine that gave me access to my unconscious is what catalyzed my ability to leave those patterns of abuse behind. It's funny, some people will say, do you mean you took one drug to get off of drugs? Like, okay, so you switched from one drug to another. It's like, no, the opposite. I took a plant that showed me aspects of myself that allowed me to do the healing work on my own sober. That's not addictive. Exactly. The plant that I'm specifically talking about, Iboga, it's a West African root bark. People in Vermont should really know about it. The active alkaloid Ibogaine completely interrupts heroin withdrawals and all withdrawals from opiates. It's called Ibogaine. It's the active alkaloid. It's a refinement of the plant. I prefer, if I'm going to work with it, to work with the whole plant. For some people who are on very high doses of opiates, they need to work most with the refined version because they need the extra push of that one alkaloid. There's 12 others in the plant. It's currently Schedule 1 in the U.S., which is preposterous because I can promise you no one's taking Iboga for fun. Unless your idea of fun is puking, lying in bed for three days, being faced with all your demons. <laughs> and worse, Graham Hancock describes his Iboga experience where he described this experience of having your body literally taken apart piece by piece <laughs> and that he will never take it again. Mm. But he has no regrets about taking it because it changed a critical aspect of his life. Very mm-hmm. similar to what you described, it caused him to move away from addictive, self-hating patterns in his life yeah. that was making his life miserable. But that it was extremely unpleasant, <laughs> excruciatingly painful, mm-hmm. and that nobody in their right mind would ever do it for fun for fun no totally and most people who do it only want to do it once um they feel like that's a and the buiti that use it traditionally in west africa use it as like there's a single initiation that you go through and then you might do it again later in life if there was a crisis moment of like illness or needing to speak to the ancestors or needing help getting pregnant or something like that it takes this a very special kind of person there's a very small tribe of ibogaine people who stay connected to the plant in some way working with it or facilitating it for others because it's a very unique energy but it has so much to teach us about addiction and the fact that it's the only thing that we know that interrupts withdrawals from opiates is so deeply symbolic to me of an ability to allow us to relinquish our dependence on things that keep us numb and away from our trauma because it actually gives us access to our trauma in a way that we can heal through. To the root of it. Yeah, get to the root of it, which I always say, it's like, it's no coincidence that it's a root. You know, sometimes things in nature are what they sound like. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that I've seen so many people use it both for physiological addictions or drug addictions, but also to addictions like Graham Hancock, to thought patterns, to self-loathing, to compulsive failure in relationship, self-sabotage in relationships. And then when you start seeing this narrative, you start realizing that like addiction isn't something that only relates relates to drugs and alcohol, which is we, we so Addiction have a, in itself is a kind of pattern 
that exists in the human condition. Exactly. And by outlawing certain substances or just treating the symptom of it, in a way we're denying our access and ability to deal with the root cause. Absolutely. And to create true, genuine healing. And the crisis that addiction of any kind often or self-destructive patterns of any time can eventually bring us to is a really important opportunity for healing. I always say that I'm so grateful that I went through a few years of addiction to bring myself to the crisis point where I had to deal with my own stuff and to really look at things in a deep way. And the surrender that was involved, the letting go of control, which I'm a very control-oriented person. I know a lot of people say they don't like psychedelics because they lose control, and I'm right there with you all because it's a, it's a hard process for me, but it's so important because once you go through that, you get access to things that you can't access when you're trying to hold on. And the only thing that would allow, that sort of forced me to even, it took work even during my Iboga trip where I healed from my addiction to let go into it. And it was only the the motivational factor that I was going to wreck my marriage, that my body was falling apart, that we'd spent every last penny to go do this legally in Costa Rica and if this failed, we didn't have any hope left. Like, I needed all of that pressure for me to let go on the level that I needed to, to, to reconnect. Desperation is a very powerful tool. Exactly. It was my main tool when I was younger. Mm, yeah. You need that Mainly. to push through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To motivate. It's really interesting to gain new knowledge we literally have to step out into the unknown because that's where new knowledge comes exactly. from in our subjective experience. It reminds me a little bit of a workshop I was at yesterday at Goddard around permaculture that you need to leave those wild zones where it can let those natural exchanges and those natural processes have a place to unfold. And if you're managing everything and not leaving room for that unknown, then you're going to be severely limited. And we're in this complete crisis with opiates in America right now and that's why I do like talking about Iboga with a lot of caveats as well it's not a magic bullet but if someone's really at that point where they're ready to change right because you have to be at that place of, absolutely of really 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 wanting to change mm -hmm. you can't fake your way through no this it won't work otherwise I mean that's and that's why I like these discussions are so important because when people start thinking about medicalizing it on one hand yes even if the person doesn't surrender to the experience they will not have the withdrawals and you know maybe for a week they won't use they won't want to use but they're gonna it's gonna start again you get this sort of dual effect of Iboga is it gives you this window of opportunity of no withdrawal and no cravings and you have to have, by the time you've gotten through it, done enough work that you've shifted the route that was driving you there to begin with. And that work is first gets done in the experience of often people see childhood traumas or patterns in their life or receive direct communication from the, something that they perceive to be divine or from the plant or from their higher self. And then there's the period of integrating that information. It's not enough to have gotten the download, but then what are you doing in your day-to-day -day life when you have finished the trip to integrate that new knowledge and change those patterns? And you get a lot of support from the plant after the experience. Your brain's plasticity is very flexible and sponge-like and you can learn new practices and patterns of behavior. It's like you've got new roads to pave. And that's why it's so critical to go in with a really clear intention. Absolutely. And with a passion or even a desperation with that intention. Yeah. Otherwise, once your brain becomes so malleable and so flexible and so plastic, if you don't have something guiding the direction that you want to go in, clearly, mm. it will revert back to its original state. Yeah, exactly. I always say it's like while you're in the experience, you're kind of like 
clearing a new dirt road. And if your intention was to get off of those really well-paved highways you've been speeding down in a loop for years in a way that's been destructive, then the next day your intention and your determination has to still be there to walk the new dirt road. It's there now. The plan's going to help you stay there. But if you're just a bit cavalier about the whole process, you know, you're going to default back to the old highway. But if you keep walking it in those weeks and months afterwards when you really have that opportunity for change and it's a lot easier than it would have been if you hadn't had the experience with the plant, then you'll soon find that old highways overgrown and you've got a new one. And, you know, that's the process of integration and aftercare, which is so important with any psychedelic experience, how you integrate what you bring back. But Iboga is just something that people should be knocking on the door of the state legislatures, banging on the doors, saying this is preposterous, that this is illegal when we have an opiate epidemic and we have nothing to do for people but to put them on lifetime sentences of methadone and suboxone, which, by the way, are f- like far more difficult. Or leave them out on the street. Or leave them out on the street. And do it illegally, underground, without any support. Really interesting, too, because we have a very... You'll hear those junkies, like, they chose to go down that path. They're selfish. They're, they let themselves go, that kind of idea. Right, if and they just got a job. Yeah, and... It, became a responsible <laughs> citizen. Exactly. As and if it's that simple. And no, and exactly. And there's so much, I mean, there's so much research now coming out about how almost universally trauma is at the root of addiction for a start. So it's like we're finding ways to punish and blame people who've already suffered so much in their lives, often at really young ages, and often really egregious forms of abuse. And even if that's not the specific case, it's it's also this broadening of understanding of addiction allows us to see in the ways in which our society kind of projects on the addict all of the unloved and shadow sides that we all have in, within ourselves. Right. You know, we all have that, whether we're the overachiever, compulsive, you know, overworker, or we, you know, just can't help ourselves when we get down to the casino, or we're a love addict, or a sex addict, or a pornography addict, or, you know, all these, and I don't really like the word addict, so I'm throwing that word around, but that's not really a word I, I choose to use often, but I, I, unless we're saying that we're all addicts, mm-hmm. which is how I do feel. Which I think pretty much everybody I know has a tendency to get fixated on certain things, substances, or activities mm-hmm. as a compensation for the anxiety, stress that's generated out of this unresolved trauma that's still deeply embedded in our body somewhere. Exactly. In the, in the dark that we're not dealing with. Yeah, and if we start acknowledging that within ourselves, then we can't help but have compassion with someone who's doing it maybe in a form we could never imagine ourselves injecting a drug, but it's the same process, it's the same thing. And I think some of the more political understandings of addiction, like Bruce Alexander writes about the globalization of addiction, really bring us to this new way of looking at this as well. Like He writes that free market capitalism, the way that our society is structured for the first time ever, following the money has to be the priority above the sort of psychosocial interweaving of community and in the past it would like the church or the village or the tribe or the the tradition, there would be something that was holding everyone together and to a certain extent and then you might have a, a terrible thing like a war or a natural disaster that would temporarily inflict a lot of trauma and break apart that web of support but only free market capitalism like necessitates that those things be subservient to the dollar all the time so more and more of us don't live near our families don't live in communities we orient our lives around the dollar and that's meant that actually we're all socially dislocated in a way that has never been present before he says we're an era in an era of peak addiction because we're compensating for that social dislocation that this is a natural adaptation to the trauma that's been inflicted 
and that psychologists don't even see it because, you know, the whole field of psychology arose within capitalism, so it can't see what itself grew out of, you know, we don't have that lens to see that we're living in a completely different way than we've ever lived before, and it's impacting our ability or to... Or than we're designed to. We're, we're social yeah. animals. Exactly. We evolved to live in community and to rely upon each other, and the dollar creates an artificial kind of environment, economy. Mm-hmm which comes from the root of home. Hmm. So it creates an artificial environment. We have this illusion that we're separate and that we can fend for ourselves mm-hmm. through the power of the almighty dollar yeah. by manipulating it and creating a zero-sum game out of it. And the essence of humanity and community is the art of creating win-win collaborative hmm. Absolutely. Relationships and associations and lives. And very conveniently, it then also gives us the perfect outlet for our new addictive tendencies and compulsive consumerism. So now Alexander writes also about how we're in this state where we know rationally that we're destroying the earth and that we're at this vital point, but we're actually like the addict that can't put the needle down. You know, we can't give up on our consumerism because it's actually one of the biggest, most common outlets, you know, like it's re- the only retail. You know, what we do is consume. And and it's the only thing left to us because everything else has been undermined and marginalized and dismissed as being uncivilized, Mm -hmm. savage. We look at tribes that live communally and cooperatively as being uncivilized and savage. We're lacking all of the things that would have kept us connected and fulfilled. And connected to our true nature, Mm. which is by its very nature interconnected and interdependent, not just within a small isolated family or group but universally Mm. and it's interesting because that's really if i was to say in like one word what my iboga experience what my psychedelic experience healing addiction was about it was about reconnection it was about realizing the interconnectivity because actually once i could feel that i didn't have to live in fear of out there so much anymore because there was no me versus out there there was this flow of energy that was coming in and out all the time that me is out there me is out there exactly me and is out not there is separate me. From, yeah. Right. yeah completely and and you know we're just our entire framework as a society is like antithetical to that and exactly. iboga is not the only substance that gives you no, that kind not of at experience all. it might be maybe the most intense mm-hmm. like getting hit once <laughs> I mean everyone's psychedelic experiences are very different but mm-hmm. iboga actually isn't even the one that comes to mind for me as the one that makes us most aware of that interconnectivity because so much of the trip often revolves around personal memory and trauma and things like that as well. And it's a completely different substance chemically from LSD and magic mushrooms and ayahuasca and peyote and San Pedro and all of these other like what we call traditional psychedelics, which people are probably more familiar with most of those. And they're all powerful medicines. They're powerful tools. Powerful tools. That we need to learn and understand how to use skillfully, not just for adolescent entertainment or as escapism. Plants and substances, even the the synthesized ones, either have an intelligence, an innate intelligence, Mm. or that's what I Mm -hmm. tend to think, or they embody a kind of transcendental portal (laughs) quality that allows us to travel way beyond anything we can conceive of in this material Mm -hmm. understanding of reality. 
I know it's it's interesting. There's so many different ways to frame it, and no one has the answers about how it works. Some people feel like it unlocks something within our own consciousness. Right, we're just trying to put into words something that is yeah that is beyond. I mean, for me, I I feel such a deep respect for the plant, and I feel like the directions that I receive, information that I receive, comes so clearly from something outside of my normal egoic self. That for me, it's helpful to talk about iboga telling me something, or the mushroom is telling me or something, or channeling and, something. And, and, Exactly. Whether it's from our higher self, quote unquote, Mm. or from something maybe outside of ourselves. But if we think in terms of us being interconnected and interdependent on everything else in this universe, Mm. implying that we are not separate from the universe Mm -hmm. in any sense, if you think in terms of fractals and energy, we are not separate at all. Even materialistically, we're not separate because all the molecules in our body are free-floating and and interchanging. And even on the biological level, our cells are regenerating so that there's actually nothing physically present in our body right now that's the same as it was maybe 10 years ago. Or Mm -hmm. So what has remained? What has continued through yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. And there's so many things that we just don't really understand about that I think that so many other cultures have understood better or un- at least, you know, had an understanding for. Or had an open-mindedness to accept in an embodied knowing sort mm-hmm. of way. Exactly. I mean, it's the, there is no answer out there for the most part. We often learn. And maybe there's nothing to figure out. Yeah, maybe it, just being is enough. And some of us feel like we need more of like an intellectual framework to feel confident and trust that beingness than others. I'm one of those <laughs> neurotic people <laughs> who tend to look for one, but I also know that the answers that I found are answers for me and if they're helpful for other people then I invite them to use them and if they're not then there's going to be as many different ways of understanding the universe as there are people probably. I think that's important too because it's so often when we're going to be faced with this a lot now with this sort of expansion of psychedelics into a medical or scientific model that there's going to be an understanding that emerges from that and maybe it'll be less, hopefully it'll be a lot less limited than it is now. But there's also other ways of knowing and understanding that. And integrating those different ways of mm-hmm. knowing. Because I think in our culture, we have to include the intellectual because we're not going to escape that. No. But psychedelic experience gives us the direct embodied experience of this knowing. So that even if we are intellectually obsessed through the use of psychedelic drugs, we get a direct fully embodied experience yeah and that's the most important part you know it's like i often try to bring back my experiences to be able to write about them and communicate them maybe not a linear but like in a a narrative way that something that somebody else can understand exactly exactly and recently i've had a couple of experiences that i wasn't able to do that for like at all like not even try to really and i heard a quote from carl Jung: the most important thing is not to understand the vision or the fantasy but to experience it and it's coming back to that knowing so it's like it's useful socially to be able to have a framework to be able to explain to communicate to communicate to share yeah and as well because especially in, we love to share we love stories. to share yeah. yeah and but especially in a culture where people are very skeptical mm. so you feel like it's not enough to say well i did this thing and now i feel this yeah. it's like no i could show you why it did that and how it, it did that you know or this is that. my story mm-hmm. and and i know all these other people who have similar kinds of stories we can't ignore these 
We yeah. can't ignore this anymore. And the nature of skepticism in our culture is not true dictionary skepticism. It's mm. more of the denial, the doubting. No, that that doesn't fit my knowing, mm -hmm. and therefore I reject it. Whereas the definition, the actual definition of skepticism is actually open-minded questioning. Hmm. Well, that would be so refreshing. Of everything. Wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, scientific skepticism is open, which is what the way science is supposed to be, hmm. is open-minded questioning, yeah. open-minded exploration and questioning of all things, all results, all assumptions, all thinking, all beliefs, mm -hmm. including the ones that we assumed were true in the past because one thing about this universe is that it's expanding and changing yeah all the time all the time mm. and why should we be so arrogant as to assume that the quote-unquote laws of physics aren't subject to the same universal absolutely experience especially when we're co-creating with the universe all the time exactly <laughs> and that that enters into a whole nother really amazing quote-unquote kind of magical realm but isn't really magic it's just the nature of the way things really are when you're really open to playing and mm -hmm. those other areas yeah i always say we're all doing magic all the time but we some of us are conscious of it and some, some more conscious than others about you know in the sense that magic just being a way a way of understanding this fundamental energy in the universe and, and the way that we and using it and using it in an intentional and skillful way mm -hmm. rather than like taking a hammer banging ourselves in the head or something <laughs> or, or using it on fine china mm -hmm. well it's like we're we're kind of attracting and manifesting things all the time by what we have around us what we're thinking about our thought patterns our past experiences our projections all of those things and it's like developing the tools that allow us to more consciously engage in that process of co-creation with the universe right and there's no such thing as a bad tool or like there's no bad dogs, there's only bad owners. And the same thing with tools. Yeah. It's how you use them. Absolutely. And just because we can't imagine a good use for something doesn't mean that somebody else can't. No. And that other people aren't. Mm-hmm. Because different things for different people. We don't all need hammers. Not everybody does construction work, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But there's some people who can't imagine life without a hammer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Reminds me of this old Sheikh Nasruddin story. Do you know Sheikh Nasruddin? No. He's a wonderful teacher. He's in this boat crossing this body of water with this famous scholar. And the scholar turns to Sheikh Nasruddin and he says, have you studied the classics? And Sheikh Nasruddin says, no. <laughs> well, then you've wasted half your life. About 15 minutes goes by and Sheikh Nasruddin turns to the famous scholar and says, did you ever learn to swim? And the scholar says, no. Well, then you've wasted your whole life because we're sinking. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So it's all relative. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the title of my thesis was The Poison is the Medicine, and that was like, I guess you could, I mean, everything in my thesis was sort of looking at how things that some people would completely write off or have a certain idea about our tools. Creative use of poison. And this is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick. I'm speaking with Britta Love, a graduate of Goddard's Graduate Institute. Institute. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> Those things don't just roll off my tongue. <laughs> but eventually they probably will. Mm-hmm. As I've been interviewing more and more of you guys. Yeah, it's an amazing Who I enjoy program. talking with so much. Because you guys are out there on that leading edge, exploring the unknown and new ways of mm. seeing and new ideas and new ways of knowing. Yeah, I'm so Often grateful. Often fearlessly. So grateful that this program exists. It's doing such important work. I don't feel like there's very many places in this country that you can do work like this. I'm someone who would have never have gone back to graduate school if there wasn't a place like Goddard College. And I was always a like overachiever academically, went to top schools. But I knew that what I had discovered in my young 20s and what I wanted to communicate to the world and learn more about, there was really nowhere else I could have done this. Because there's no appreciation or recognition that, that it's valid work. Absolutely. Or valid study, valid intellectual ways And that's what Goddard's so great. I'm in love with like the entire faculty of my program because it's really, we cover so much ground and there's this ability to work with people who are going to really help you think critically about what you're assuming based on your lived experiences and to unpack your privilege and to give yourself a social justice lens that I didn't have before I came to the school to really look at issues of appropriation and what happens when you use indigenous plant medicines and how do we use these things respectfully and carefully and look at issues like that and you also have faculty who are going to help you who really more specialize in helping you trust your inner knowings and your embodied experiences and we need both those things we need a deeply integrative way of approaching a deeply integrative world exactly yeah Exactly. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing. On Friday on my show, I had five of Goddard's faculty, which was amazing. (laughs) Really amazing, wonderful people who, and I see that they get as much joy and learning from interacting with the amazing students that come to Goddard, the people who are exploring, who have the courage and passion for exploring the unknown. And you feel that as a student. You completely feel the fact that the faculty are in love with what they do what they get to do here. And that's a really special feeling. I did not feel that at the London School of Economics. I mean, sorry, anyone who has very strong attachments to that school, I learned there, but there, it's, it's a very different model of education. And it's really the old model, or what needs to become the old model if we're going to move forward. It's the old ivory tower. Yeah, exactly. Of academia, of intellectual pursuit, which is that old way of thinking that Einstein said we can't solve the problems of the world with the old thinking. Yeah, you can't, yeah, exactly. You can't use that same thinking to solve those problems. And that's it's sort of how I ended up studying what I studied because I first wanted to study politics and international relations to heal on some global level. And then I saw how that wasn't really going to work because of the way that the institutionalization... Had- that you can't even think outside of the box of the yeah. system. Like, you can only make change through the system and then... Exactly. And it's only at a certain point you realize that this system is fundamentally flawed. It's Mm -hmm. fundamentally skewed and is lacking a whole dimension to it. And then I moved into sociology because I was like, okay, well, the people have to shift, you know, so that then the social trends that emerge allow the people within the institutions to push in different directions, perhaps, or to break down the institution. And I was really interested in that for a while. But then I realized to get the social movement that we want, actually what's required is a shift in consciousness. Right. Those are all pieces Mm -hmm. of the puzzle, but we have to understand the whole thing. Exactly. Yeah. And that's how I landed in consciousness studies, because I was fascinated by the ways in which 
entire paradigm shifts can occur in an individual and when enough individuals experience that in a civilization. We see paradigm shifts in consciousness all the time, right? And we look back, you know, when you're in school and you're learning about some crazy things that were happening in the Victorian era and you think, oh my, how could they lock up people who were mentally ill? It was so cruel, but it was just a shift in consciousness. Or how could we have had slaves, our founding fathers who had but all these we still do ideas? It. Well, absolutely. And we still do that too. Under it, but we have a different understanding of what the acceptance level is, but we haven't actually disturbed the underpinnings of those institutions. The power structures. Yeah, the power structures. Which are still deeply entrenched in those old mm-hmm. models. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But how do you revolutionize consciousness? And So how do you revolutionize <laughs> consciousness? Since that really is the the question. That's the crux of the whole thing, and by necessity, the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's why I really focused on in my studies on sex and drugs because they're two of the most powerful ways to do that. And, and sex and is free. And sex is free. Drugs are a bit risky <laughs> well, nowadays because they're illegal. Right, absolutely. And we can start with our bodies. And I mean, even I have friends who are doing a lot of, you know, breath work. And you can reach holotropic states of altered states of consciousness with no drugs just through your breath. And that, to me, that's really radical because it's just any, anyone can do that. As long as we have our breath, we have our ability to shift our consciousness. But if we can combine them all, if we can jumpstart the mm. process, like many people have jumpstarted with psychedelics and then they go into these other areas. Like yeah, absolutely. I jumpstarted with psychedelics and then I went into those other areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. I feel like that's why I focused on the sex and drugs is that they're really powerful catalysts that I couldn't meditate before. I hadn't seen where it was that I would be trying to even go. I needed something to push through mm-hmm. so that I could have an idea of what I, I was actually trying to initiation in those states. Yeah. And that's psychedelic drugs for many people are like the initiation that yeah. doesn't exist in Western culture. And a lot of people argue that that's why teenagers go off and try to self-initiate sometimes successfully and sometimes really tragically because we don't have a way something that we would have had for millennia in every culture. I mean, when I was in Gabon watching the Buiti kids being initiated, I say kids, they're between 8 and 12. Mm-hmm. And they're with their parents taking this psychoactive plant and this is their initiation into adulthood, into the world. It's Which is essential. If you're going to be a living being on this planet, We have to have a direct experience. And the one thing that Western culture does to us is it isolates us Mm -hmm. from the world and Mm -hmm. that direct experience and shoves us into this very narrow spectrum of understanding and of the world, of the nature of reality, which we're seeing the results of. Absolutely. We need to be giving ourselves and each other experiences that are going to plant very different seeds than what's grown out of what we've had so far. And that's why I get frustrated with just looking at what can we do within the political system or what can we do? It's really like it's so, it needs to be so radically different. And But how? But how? But how? I mean, I struggle with that continually and I observe how different people are responding And I'm really frustrated because everybody has it partially right. People on the right Mm -hmm. and the left. Mm -hmm. I'm focusing more on the response of people on the left. But everybody's missing the boat Mm -hmm. to some degree. And I keep struggling with how can we really integrate the whole whole thing and see things really broadly. Mm -hmm. And so that we have a really holistic and healthy way of approaching all the challenges including our challenges of observation and the way we see things and the way we respond because we're continually responding to the stress stimulus and it kind of knocks us 
on our ass. Yeah, continually. That's, but that's why altered states of consciousness are so important right now because they're the places that we can get some reprieve from being hammered by our newsfeed and our. That's one our, way. And what I mean is that when we access those altered states, that's where we can begin to dream other worlds into being. And I feel like my personal role for the revolution or, you know, I think we each have one, all of us who want to be a part of it. I feel like it's like the sort of Johnny Appleseed of like, here, here's a door, here's a door. And then as everyone walks through their respective doors, everyone's going to have a piece of the answer. Everyone's going to have a role to play and it's going to be an evolving role in how this new system emerges. Because when you come out of those experiences, you've broken down enough of the sort of assumptions or current paradigms that you can envision something new, right? Like they're doing research on LSD for creativity, and they did that in the 60s as well. And they found that, I think it was Francis Crick who, who said on his deathbed that he took LSD was actually how he first envisioned DNA. Like that's a complete paradigm shift for science to have an understanding of DNA. There's a whole new world that opened. And something helped him unlock that and of course he was also someone who wanted that who had that intention and had that background but with this extra catalyst and intention and whether it is that we dream through psychedelics or we dream just our dreams every night or whatever access point we each have and feel comfortable with and to use to connect to those altered states which are not just drug induced right but we also don't need to disparage drugs as if they're any less a form of altered state and these substances exist in our brains already we have They've discovered that we have receptor sites for all these substances in our brain. Mm -hmm. And that should tell the scientific community and the medical community that there's more to these substances than they've been allowed. Absolutely. I mean, the active ingredient in ayahuasca, the South American plant brew, dimethyltryptamine or DMT, is actually produced by our brain every day. So we're all we're all breaking the law right now because that's an illegal substance and we're producing it internally whether we like it or not. And some people theorize that it's res- partially responsible for the dream state, that there's a very strong connection there, which would make a lot of sense. So it's like these are endogenous chemicals to us. And it's in our lineage. I mean, there's a lot of interesting theories too about how much of our own evolution was at certain moments where scientists still say, how did we go in that shortest space of time, right. evolutionarily speaking, to develop those language centers of those jumps, I would not be surprised one bit. If, well, Terence McKenna you know, makes a very strong argument for that. Yeah, he does. And it's brilliant. Yeah, his whole stoned ape theory is great. And, you know, yeah. it makes perfect sense. We know we're out in the African plains and the ma- those magic mushrooms grow in the cow dung. That, you know, and they so. appear at these points in time in our history when they're needed most, mm. which is part of what what makes me think that these are intelligent substances or they're substances that are integrally embedded in our experience in our world mm-hmm. knowingly that this is a conscious universe that we live in the whole thing is intelligent yeah and not to go off into the religious simplistic mm-hmm. notion that some paternal god created Made it that it, way yeah, yeah, or designed it that way yeah. that, that that's just the nature of the universe itself mm-hmm. it is whole it's a living whole it may not all have beating hearts and warm blood flowing through it, but doesn't necessarily make it any less living no, and intelligent. intelligent yeah. yeah. No, and it, I, I do feel like, you know, a lot of people commented on the fact that the first you know, nuclear warhead was created the same year that LSD was discovered, that there's this sort of like equal and opposite thing, like the most powerful destructive tool and then yet maybe the most powerful way we could shift away from wanting to even be building these things, you know, as a society. 
The universe is adherence to the notion of balance. Exactly. And it doesn't feel like a coincidence that psychedelics are making a big comeback in medicine and in the dominant narrative. There's pop culture references to microdosing, LSD, and I'm really amused by all that because I I think it could be really interesting to microdose and work with different plants in small doses. Micro is meant to be like sub-threshold, so you're not altered. So I think of it as kind of homeopathy for the American subconscious. Like we're sort of finding a way where, oh, it's okay if those Silicon Valley guys get a little creative taking a tiny bit of LSD and it doesn't shift anything else too much and on one hand i'm a little critical because i'm like i don't want to see the sort of like commodification of these psychedelics into tools to be better capitalist performers but i also think that while we're keeping an eye on that it's interesting to see this sort of introduced into the bloodstream in whatever small quantity that's almost preparing us to be receptive for a bigger shift you know it could be paving the way for a wider acceptance of it Mm -hmm. i feel like that's definitely happening and then i think about places like Goddard that had a history and maybe a a reputation for both of the topics in my thesis for this idea of kind of like this free-flowing, you know, drug culture and whatever way back then. Hippie college, exactly. Which, when I arrived at Goddard, I was like, oh my God, I'm like the outlaw here because no one here is talking about sex or psychedelics. I felt a bit like, oh, am I allowed to? You know, so it's definitely completely changed and needed to sort of polish up and really like assert itself as an institution, which I think it's done. But now we're at this point where psychedelic research is completely legitimate again and really important and I feel like it's places like Goddard where this research needs to pick up again because we have both the lineage in the formation of the college and what was important to it was connected to these things and also we have the framework to do the critical thinking that needs to be done about how this renaissance takes place. How would you envision that happening? Well, I'm not the first consciousness studies student to study psychedelics. We've, we've had people do amazing research, ethnographic research, um, South American shamanism with ayahuasca and with uh, things about LSD. And I think if the college just didn't shy away from that and really could be on the forefront of this, it could really help with our enrollment and also give us like an area of speciality because it's not just about taking the drug. It's about the way the drug's going to shift the culture. It's about the mental health implications of having the drug available. It's about the ethical issues about how the plants are available or how they're administered if it's in a medical setting. It's about accessibility. It's about indigenous awareness. There's so many angles, all of which Goddard already does the important thinking around in their work quite often that we could be picking up on this. So that's one of my hopes and visions for that to be something that Goddard gets to play a role in because if it is just NYU and Johns Hopkins, we risk these potentially radical tools not being radical at all. Not being deeply explored or widely explored in the ways that they could possibly. I'm speaking with Britta Love, a graduate of Goddard's Graduate Institute. So time is flying by. (laughs) So we've got like 35 minutes left. We could continue down this path or... Where are you feeling like going? I want to go where you want to (laughs) go. Whatever turns you on will turn me on because that's what I'm here for. Mm. So I don't know if we have enough time to get into sex work, healing, Mm. or... Yeah, let's do a little bit of that. Or the archetype of the sacred prostitute. I mean, I feel like it deserves a lot of time, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, we could touch on it. You know, this won't be the last time we talk, I'm sure. Oh, definitely. (laughs) So do we want to go back into history to begin or do we want to... 
I mean, I think it's it's Start interesting here. to to have a little bit of a historical framework because it's very similar to psychedelics in the sense that you know we have a very small idea in our culture of what a role for someone who is performing a sexual service would look like and. Historically, and all of the archaeology and anthropology around this stuff is always debated, and mm-hmm. we don't have evidence to prove one way or another, but there is a lot of evidence that points towards goddess worship in ancient Mesopotamian cultures, having priestesses who served the temples that were involved in sexual rites. And those sexual rites would be given in exchange for donations to temples, as they always are even today. You could go to temple or church and you donate back to the church for the service, whatever it is. So obviously that's, you know, our very modern idea of what prostitution or sex work would look like. This is a completely different cultural construct, but it shows that there are these other possibilities for how that role can manifest and really powerful roles. So my experience was of someone who started in sex work and felt very deeply connected and surprised by my connection to the work and who literally just felt that I could not be the first person to experience this. And what was it that you were experiencing? I would meet clients. I was an escort in London and I would meet clients and there was just this beauty of shared vulnerability, of shared surrender, of receiving a total stranger and seeing the beauty in them. Opening yourself up. Exactly. and body. Mm Mm-hmm. To be... Emotionally and sexually. Mm Mm-hmm. That was the way I... I Which, of course, is is antithetical to our Western cultural's viewpoint about... Stereotypes. Stereotypes about about love and sexuality mm -hmm. and and the proper boundaries. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, I mean, some people would say, well, that was a very naive approach to... I didn't even... When I started working, I thought I was going to go in very cynically. Just for the money. Just for the money and and for a bit of a trip as well. I I had very unhealthy relationships to men in general and the way I was sexualized. I thought, well, this is better than being in relationships where I'm doing this emotional labor for free and I'm still not getting what I want out of a relationship. So I I had my own kind of dysfunctional reasons for getting into it, but I couldn't be that cold and calculated once I got there. Because ultimately, no matter how much we talk about, you know, who the Johns who are buying women, you know, these weird narratives we have around sex work, ultimately you're two humans that are getting naked in a room. You're two strangers are getting naked in a room together. And outside of certain people who might have very sociopathic personalities, the vast majority of us are humbled and vulnerable in that experience. And that's what I connected to. And that's what I grew through. And that's what I learned to love. Because to me, it was the most sacred thing in the world. That as long as the person wasn't, you know, an asshole, it was like we actually found something. And not just, you know, oh, like, you know, So you saw their humanity. I saw their humanity. You saw who they deeply were Mm -hmm. on an essential level. They weren't just some screwed up man who needed sex for some dysfunctional reason necessarily, no. which is the Western stereotype of someone who goes to... Absolutely. To a- I mean, it's it's like um, there's as many reasons as people see a sex worker as the reasons people see a masseuse. Sometimes it is just letting off steam some relaxation. Sometimes it's severe loneliness. Sometimes it's sexual dysfunction or self-consciousness around sexual performance. Sometimes it's a like... A dark time in their life when they don't have anybody. Exactly. And so often you it's such a listening profession for people who really want to open up and talk about what's happening in their lives. And I just felt the sense of responsibility really early on to actually respect and honor what was taking place and not just take their money unless I felt I was giving something And that's because you valuable. saw their humanity. You realized that they were 
a human being and mm -hmm. it sounds like you are a special kind of a person <laughs> well no i i i I have a lot that is of sex. open to seeing person as they really are mm. and not overlaying some trip on them. You're not judging them. There's lots of sex workers who've spoken about how they are become close friends with their clients, how they see the beauty in them, how they want it to be there for them. I mean, this is like one of the huge narratives that have to be shifted around sex work. You must be really good at sex. Do you enjoy it? You'll never be in a relationship. I kind of go like this. <laughs> Are you being forced? Are you being forced? You must do sex work. We're all forced to work in one way if you want to be really abstract about it, aren't we? We need money. Obviously, there are people that have been forced into it. They're the ones that are facing the dangers. They are the ones that need exit strategies, help, more support. I'm not being forced. I'm happy. I might be forcing my on somebody in a session, but that's about it. What happened to you to make you choose this? There's so much like um, kind of underlying pity in that question. It's like they expect some tragic story, don't they? Yeah. Like, oh, I lost my home and I lost my job. One of the reasons I got into it is because it was like flexible around my schedule. I had no social life. I could do a little bit of money. I hate the fact, I love sex. I hate the fact that when you go out and you meet somebody in a bar and you go back to have sex, it's so bad. Sex work gives me time to work on my writing. Sex work gives me time to make sure I can go out and enjoy the countryside with my husband. If I'm gonna go out, not only am I getting paid, but I'm getting to meet fantastic people and I get to yeah. orgasm two, three times a day. <laughs> Who does not want that job? How much money do you make? People think that because I'm a dominatrix, I must wear fur coats and Christian Louboutin <laughs> shoes. It's very two-dimensional. It's portrayed either very tragic or very glamorous. There's yes, no there's, real there's no, in between. No, like what, Realism. what the actual thing mm. is. I'm shopping at Littles. I'm saving money for my retirement. I'm scrimping. People do find it more acceptable when you're making more money because then it seems more like you're not being forced into it. Or all the men losers. All the men are great. All my men are great. Yeah, all my, all men, are great. All my men are great. Unless they want to be losers and then we, we tell them in the session. People come to see a sex worker for so many different reasons. Because they just can't be bothered to date. Yeah. because they come from a conservative background and can't date a male. I mean, some of my clients, they, don't, they can't tell their parents or they can't tell their carers. So I have to go around, I have to get them in a hoist, I have to get them on the bed, I have to get them undressed, I have to then bathe them, I have to clean them. I, I do all of these things and people don't think that as a sex worker we care. You can't be a feminist and a sex worker. What a load of I'm a professional submissive, so I spend a lot of time like tied up, getting spanked, getting flogged, all this stuff. And they're like, you're throwing feminism back hundreds of years, you're making abuse okay. That whole thing of like, oh, but you know, sex workers are like, they're not feminists, so they're not. And it's like, well, no, you can't say that. This is my life. We are in control. We decide what happens to our bodies consensually, and it does yes. not harm anybody else. Yeah. So... <clears throat> It's so dangerous. 
If people want to make our job less dangerous, it should be fully 100% decriminalized. So in Northern Ireland, they've already incorporated the Swedish model, which is to criminalize the purchase of sex, and that's what yes. they're trying to do here in the UK. If buying sexual services is illegal, the only people who will come to see sex workers are folks who are already comfortable with breaking the law. Is it really kinky? Why are you asking me this? Do you really want to know? Or are you just really wanting to either judge or get your rocks off? Just like face sitting, that's mm -hmm. hugely popular. Um, tickling is a really big one. When I have a client come to me, I'll always say, so what would you like to try? And they'll go, well, I'm pretty much open to everything. I'll say, well, I've got a strap on over there. And they're like, no, 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 no. no, no, no. Sitting on a guy's face and just bikini bottom while tickling him and having someone laugh in your vagina is a very... <laughs> A very interesting experience. <laughs> Why don't you get a job? Because I'm running a successful business. How do we get a job? I run my own fucking business. And there's like also that thing where people just like, "Yo, it's like it's easy." People, we've got our advertising, our marketing, the time oh, it takes, shoot. photos, venues, yeah. touring. Takes skill to wrestle someone to the ground safely yeah. without breaking a bone or pulling a muscle. It takes skill to hit somebody with a heavy stick yeah. without damaging their breath play. breath play. Personally, I'm way happier doing this than working 40 hours a week in a Starbucks. Now I can work. 10 hours a month for the same pay. Oh my God, everybody should be doing this. Do you know what? If everybody started having more sex and more orgasms every day, nobody would give a shit about everybody else. Everybody would be happy and the world would be a safer place. I have just solved all our world problems of peace, more sex, more orgasms, and that's it. This is like one of the huge narratives that have to be shifted around sex work and as long as we're talking about consensual adults and not any form of like coercion or violence that yeah any form of coercion where someone is not being given the choice in their work is wrong and slavery our labor laws already outlaw that we don't need specific laws around sex work that are actually in their application 90 something percent of the time used against people who are not in those situations of abuse and exploitation but are in situations of survival or maybe even thriving in what they're doing and making choices to do that. So that's a really important distinction. But when you have this narrative around who clients are, what relationships, even when you look at like stories about high-end escorts and call girls, it's like, oh, well, they're all like disconnected and, you know, cold to their clients and they're just faking this whole thing. And it sort of assumes this lack of humanity on both sides. That's like completely untrue in my experience. Some sex workers have keep a very strong distance to their clients. They need that for their boundaries and their emotional health. And that's completely valid as well. You know, like there's all different ways of providing a service and there's different services that could be provided in this. The intention they bring to it. Exactly. And sounds like the intention that you bring to it is to be present and authentic. Yeah. And to make the most of it, have a f complete experience with it. It took Something me... Something that enriches you as well. It does. And it's, it's not just... It took a, me a while to a, get there to realize... selling of oneself for some money, like like most people actually do with their jobs. They yeah. sell themselves <laughs> yeah. for money. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's the funny thing is that I, um, so many of my sex worker community talk about how, like, this is the least exploitative job they've ever had. You know, that being a waitress or stocking shelves, this is somewhere where they're far more empowered, where they're often working in 
independently, where they can choose their own hours, where they don't have... And much better compensated, Much usually. better compensated. And also, you know, we don't talk about the fact that most people working around minimum wage jobs are, you know, especially, you know, women are often subject to so much inappropriate sexual interactions on the job. Anyway, we don't talk about... They're not even being compensated, you know, from a sex work perspective for that. <laughs> This is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick. I'm speaking with Britta Love, a graduate of Goddard's Graduate Institute. So let's get into the healing aspect of it. So for me, it was first healing to recognize men's humanity and vulnerability because I hadn't seen that aspect of male sexuality. So this is healing for you. First, it was healing for me, yeah. Mm. And finding that connection. And then I noticed that once I was I'd healed that relationship to men, I was able to trust more in those interactions. And that's when I really started seeing that so much was possible, that when we meet each other with complete acceptance and presence, you know, in any way, when someone holds space for you, it's powerful. But to hold space for someone in their naked vulnerability, in their orgasm, in that moment of surrender that is a complete lack of control. Even if you think you're a control freak, if you have an orgasm, there's a moment that you let go. And tellingly, it is some of the most ecstatic moments that you will experience in this life. In this life. And it's freely available to everybody. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's powerful Although medicine. Our religious prudish culture does try to box it in and control it as mm-hmm. well. And even like in our supposedly free post-sexual revolution, we've ended up with this complete <laughs> like watering down, you know, where it's like oh, do we have the right toys or techniques or or performance of this sexuality rather than the the experience of it? It's it's Mm. so... Commodifying the experience again. Completely, completely. I mean, it's in so many ways just... I mean, it's healing to lose self-consciousness around nudity. It's healing to be held through a surrender. It's healing to experience that with a stranger... I suppose part of it is that it may be easier sometimes to do it with a stranger because you can go places that maybe if you had other aspects of a relationship to maintain that it would be more difficult. And you can also imagine that maybe you'll never see them again Mm -hmm. and nobody will ever know. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Although, as we alluded to at the very beginning, it can be very terrifying to expose ourselves and be Mm -hmm. naked in both the literal and metaphorical sense and make ourselves vulnerable Mm. in that way. And that in our society is is actually hard for people to do even with their partners. Exactly. And some people go to prostitutes for that very reason because they cannot they don't know how to express themselves sexually mm-hmm. with their own partner. Mm-hmm. They're too inhibited. Yeah, quite There's, often sex workers become sexual teachers of just basic, you know, how to touch, how to be with your body, how to be how to with, be present, how to be present, how to just breathe. Exactly. Relax. And let go, which chances are you're not going to hear from your spouse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's it's a, kind of, it's a kind of, it's a sexual therapy. Exactly. And there are established roles of sex surrogates, which operate in the gray area of the law, but are often, they have clients referred to them by therapists who say, okay, you've done as much work around your sexual trauma or dysfunction as we can verbally. Now you need to have a practice partner to work with. And we, there is also sexological body workers who do hands-on work on a massage table where they're clothed, but they are helping you access work through 
where trauma might be stored in the pelvis or in the anus or in the vulva. In a safe, in a safe non, space. non-judgmental environment. And I think these modalities are so important and their connections they're on the way, on the road back to the sacred prostitute, just the way that the medicalization of psychedelics are on the road back to the traditional spiritual and ecstatic uses of psychedelics. But I also want to say that the sex workers who are out there who haven't been trained to do those things are often already doing those things and should feel empowered to recognize that about their work and how valuable it is because you don't need special training to give someone the experience of just being held and being able to relax and experience ecstasy within the presence of another human being that's you just need to be yourself and be open exactly yeah so which should be or could be the simplest things yeah, should be the simplest things. Yeah. Often but in the our, hardest in things. Our, yeah. yeah. And I guess similarly, I, I suppose I should also say that so often we talk about, you know, intentional psychedelic work and versus recreational. And we have to be careful there, too, because quite often recreational is the way into people connecting to, you know, really powerful things they didn't even intend on for most people it was recreational or just like oh i heard about this exactly just like for a lot of clients they didn't realize how to bring an attention to something totally new no exactly because first you have to know it exists you have to know it exists you have (laughs) to try it just to get even the vaguest sense of what it is and Mm -hmm. then then you can start thinking about well how can i really skillfully utilize this Mm -hmm. in a creative and deliberate way exactly and i feel like that's often what happened with my clients is that i feel like they unconsciously knew they were looking for something to break out of something to connect to something in their own words they probably would have just said yeah i needed to get laid you know right there's that line when people are uptight oh you just need to get laid When was the last time you got laid? Yeah. Oh, no wonder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. And it's like this, it's tr- so true, actually, now that you say it in that way, it's like this very powerful and yet completely unconscious way of recognizing how important orgasm is to shaking you out of those ruts and allowing, giving you a release and a connection to something, you know, but we just sort of say, okay, well, you, now you got it out of your system, but that's not what's actually happening. It's it's an opening. It's and a connection. I just made a, a connection. I don't know if it's a valid connection or not, but how in our society a lot of women supposedly don't have orgasms with their partners Mm. and at the same time women are very judgmental about sex especially prostitution and about the morality and ethics of how you go about having sex Mm -hmm. like who you have sex with and well we're all taught to be like moralizing or judgmental to an extent about those things but i do feel like there's so much more for women to often to work through in terms of well there is equal but different things because of gender socialization often but around sex work it just touches in so much around the madonna horror kind of complex that dualism because one extreme or the other exactly and and no gray no gray area and it's fundamental to how we learn to repress our sexuality as women are buying into that system so that we're not the slut or the whore and while that's loosened a little bit and more so in europe when i was there it was like much more loose for women comparatively in terms of how we judge but once you've invested in a system 
someone then comes along and is like, well, I just decided not to buy into that system and I've just been doing this and, you know, making great money or I've just been doing this and having great sex. It's like, how dare you? Like, I'm going to lose everything that, you know, so it's, mm, it's, yeah. and it's unconscious, but that's why I have often found that I've had a far easier time talking to men about being a former sex worker than to women because it's deep. You know, when I came out as a sex worker to my best friend, the first person I ever told after I started working, you know, because it's a very isolating thing when you realize you're suddenly carrying all this stigma. And I told her and she was like, she just looked at me with this death stare. She was, and after I finished telling her, she was like, I would literally rather die than ever do that. And it was like, whoa. And in some way, you have to believe that because otherwise we could all be really sexually free and open and maybe capitalizing under this dysfunctional system on sexuality since we're punished or, or exploited for And that's usually it's out of a deep sense of trauma that we've experienced at some point in our life. And to open up outside of that would be to dishonor even the unconsciousness of that trauma mm. in us. Mm. Which is how I think it manifests for most people that mm-hmm. we hold on to it, we keep it buried and repressed yeah. to the point where we don't even know it's there, but we're defending it to the death. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. As if it's something that needs to be honored in a righteous, fundamentalist way. Mm. Yeah. It's really deep, and there's so many crazy tangled knots that we each hold inside us. Or that we're trapped in, mm-hmm. entangled in. Not not that we're doing it deliberately. No. We just don't know any better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And even the most aware of us have aspects of that in us. Absolutely. Many I mean, things like that. Yeah, there's so many ways in which, you know, people always assume, I guess you get projected on a lot when you make your name talking about sex and drugs, you know, because they're very emotional topics for people and they're going to see you based on their own projections and ideas. Yes. And I feel always. like... Always. <laughs> and so it's a really interesting thing when you start realizing people think like, oh, you must be some kind of sex guru or you're like, right. you have no hang-ups about sex. Right. You're probably just doing all the time, you know, and it's all this, and I'm, I'm noticing this, like, kind of, you know, it takes me a while usually to realize, like, get a little sense of how people are sometimes seeing me, and I'm like, whoa, like, you're projecting, but actually, I still carry all the things we all carry around sexuality in our society. I've had places where I've been allowed to experience it so differently that I know it can be different, and I've made inroads in exploring some of that, but it's something we each carry, no matter, you know, what our experience, I feel like, or how conscious we try to be it you know we can only hope that the next generation gets a lot less of that and that we weed that out i think each successive generation does get less of it in general of Mm. course there's always the exceptions but as somebody who has been exploring these things and has experienced inroads and insights into this and had the opportunity to really have a lot of this stuff unravel in your experience what can you share with the rest of us who haven't had that Mm. you know kind of like like when you're coming back from a psychedelic experience, what can you share? Hmm. It's similar to advice I'd share about coming back from a psychedelic experience. It really comes down to, or what we were talking about at the beginning of the show as well, to learn to be vulnerable. To, to trust that? To trust. Trust in the relationship between being vulnerable and being in the unknown? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that, for a lot of us who have carried trauma, especially trauma inflicted on us directly by other people, especially around sex, which is very common in our culture, that starts, I think, best starts with your relationship to your own body, Mm. trusting your own instincts towards pleasure and learning to value them 
and not feel guilty about them or shameful and finding places to honor them in your life whether you create a ritual around masturbation or you know like self-love um really finding places where connecting to the body and valuing what the body is saying in a safe way where you could start seeing what can emerge from that which will allow you to trust more yeah use that magic p word pleasure yes (laughs) something that is highly stigmatized i know that's unbelievable really (laughs) how important is pleasure for a human being you know beings who are who live in bodies their entire life who are experiencing stress on a day-to-day basis Mm -hmm. and have unknown traumas locked away in their bodies that have this profound effect Mm. and have this weight that we carry around pleasure heals and there's you know, it's in moments of deep, like, I think there's a Starhawk quote, or she says, I can't remember what she's defining, but it's like, it's the knowing in the midst of pleasure of its deepest source. It's like that we're ecstatic beings. We're meant to experience pleasure. It's something that connects us to something bigger than ourselves. Is pleasure kind of like the outer manifestation that connects? It's like there's a chord between that experience of pleasure and our deepest some aspect of our deepest Mm. self it can be it can be and i think it's sometimes we have a hard time like distinguishing between like kind of fun and pleasure like real pleasure you know like i think that like a lot of us don't embodied yeah deeply embodied exactly not just like a particular point or spot on our body but, Mm -hmm. but something that really spreads energetically overwhelms our entire body mm-hmm. you know? exactly and i think that the potential our body is potential for pleasure in our culture it's like we like haven't even hit the tip of the iceberg like we are so far from that we don't learn how to practice no. pleasure or the possibilities of the experience of pleasure i guess the main thing is we're not i was just about to use the word permission given permission but we shouldn't need permission to do anything to to give ourselves permission we shouldn't even have to give ourselves permission but i think it's we have to we have to now social forces right we have to give ourselves complete permission to blow the doors open Mm -hmm. and freely explore Mm -hmm. and to allow ourselves to imagine that anything is possible Mm -hmm. and to continually expand that that imagination of what's possible not allow ourselves to get stuck yeah. At any level of experience, that there's always more possible mm-hmm. in the exploration. That mm-hmm. the universe is expanding in everything, our experiences expanding our knowing and our ways of knowing, and the possible ways of knowing. Mm-hmm. For sure. And we all experience them in our bodies, right? Absolutely. There's so no other way. <laughs> that's, that's the home base. That's where we get to practice. That's our laboratory. Mm-hmm. It is. It's what we have what we have to work with. Is and we have to do it in this present moment, too. So we have to establish a direct relationship with our body, and we have to do it out of time. We have to take it out of that linear notion of past, present, agenda-based time, goal-oriented, and be in the present moment. Mm-hmm. Which is another really difficult thing that we don't learn to do in, no. this, in this culture. And it's another way in which sex is healing is that it often allows us to access... Even if just for a moment. Even if just for a moment, that sense of being in the presence, right? Even even going away from the focus on the orgasm, which we have a big focus on in general in our culture, sometimes distortedly, often distortedly, 
you know, states of erotic trance. Yeah. Using touch as a way of almost like a mindfulness practice where you're just feeling sensation. And surrendering, and, even surrendering the orgasm, letting the orgasm go. Mm-hmm. Because exactly. I've had, many times I've had that experience where I just let go of that. Yeah. And then I melt into this whole other very warm, expansive state. Absolutely. That is far more delicious. Like the afterglow, like when you just yeah. relax and, and melt with the other person, that's the best part of it. So, yeah. yeah, and there's lots of, there's just so much to explore and we tend to maybe overly focus on one path of exploration. And I think that some people have very transcendent experiences during orgasm that parallel you know, mystical and psychedelic states reported throughout time. And there's also just what happens when you just lose your sense of you versus I and all there is is touch and connection and sensation and how healing a state that is. So, you know, I feel like actually before I even touched a psychedelic sex was really where I learned to meditate. Well, it is a meditation in itself Mm -hmm. because even when you're out of touch, because a big part of meditation is recognizing when you're not. And it's so clear during sex when you've let your mind start taking over, right? Because right. you stop feeling things you're not aware, and yet it's such an intimate thing that it really brings into... I always notice anyway, personally, that if I'm actually on a day where my mind is sort of doing things and I'm not really mindful of, of where my thoughts are, and then I have sex, it's like, whoa, like, look how not present you are. You're, you're, you can't help but be made aware of it, because it's so in contrast to what has to happen to have good sex. Right. And, <laughs> and you have this feeling like, oh, I just missed the boat again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're feeling we're, we're, we're seeking the nourishment we're talking about so many nourishing things there's so many ways to nourish ourselves so mm. many ways to heal ourselves so many ways to feed and honor ourselves and just to be mm. and sometimes diving into exploring the darkness is just as important absolutely we have to explore the boundaries we have to make mistakes well, actually, in order to learn that's such an important point because I always forget unless I I plan to talk about it to mention that, you know, for some people, you know, being with a a neo-tantric or sex worker or whatever could be the healing path. For other people, conscious BDSM is a healing path that they need. Say that again? Conscious sadomasochism, BDSM, because that's going into the darkness. That's going into those dark places where we seek knowledge and to the outside world that could seem like a very scary or cruel or violent thing, but actually... Some people need to go in that direction because somehow it relates to something that's unresolved in their body. Yeah, and and also there's a... It's the same idea of the dominant facilitates in the same way that a shaman would, the surrender, in the same way that a psychedelic would help you right like it's the surrender of another person so that they can access their unconscious and ecstatic states and so there's a similar process happening it's so far from all of our ideas about things but to me i see a shaman in fact actually i know a druid priest who works with ayahuasca who also works with bdsm and i mean that's the beauty of new york city (laughs) you know and he sees himself as doing the same thing so would you would you encourage that everybody explore all these avenues just to see how it feels for them? And I feel like it's really important to follow intuition and what's drawing you in. So if you hear the name of one plant or one person talking about an experience, because they're not all for everyone and mm-hmm. there's different things will trigger different people. And sometimes those are good triggers and sometimes that might not be the right time for that trigger. And there's 
infinite ways of honoring ourselves and we all exactly. need to be honored in different ways. Exactly. It just needs to be on the table, destigmatized and available for people who And we don't have to push ourselves in any unnatural ways. No. Follow our intuition. No, sometimes people like read about psychedelics for 20 years before they take one and I respect that as long as it's not because of the social fear that's being forced down you. It's like listen, honor your body and, and your unconscious knowings. That's what this is all about after all. And that's what life is all about. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, this is it. We're preaching on the radio about venturing into the unknown. And we all of a sudden find ourselves there. <laughs> <laughs> Happens actually the commencement speaker at our graduation yesterday. She was a Goddard graduate. I was there at the same time as her and she had done all of her work about improvisation and going into the unknown and as a form of like healing and how it works for people who have ADHD. And that was her thesis. And she got up and she gave this amazing, her name is Amelia Bain. She gave this amazing improv but also inspirational commencement speech and she's halfway through and the pages are blank in front of her and she literally has to improvise the rest of the commencement speech. It was like this perfect cosmic like and now show us <laughs> you know this is what you've been saying so what is it what does this look like and she was brilliant. She mm. ventured into the unknown and she carried it through. She improvised. Goddard's such a great space for supporting people mm. in the unknown and in the terrifying spaces. Yes. When I walk around campus, I think about every space, almost every room, I have some very deep memories of, you know, powerful transformation and being held by the community, by the faculty, by the students through those things. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. This Thank you. This has been wonderful. And we're going to have to do this again because there's so much more that we didn't get to. Absolutely. So I've been speaking with Britta Love. She's a graduate of Goddard's Graduate Institute. And this has been just wonderful. Thank you so, so much, So great Tanya. to talk with you. Wonderful conversation. Yes, indeed.
it for this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening and until next time have a great week <laughs>